Welcome to Watching Trees Grow, a podcast by Troutwood, hosted by Jean Natali, co-founder and CEO of Troutwood. Watching Trees Grow is here to help Gen Z plant the seed for a sustainable and stable financial future. If you'd like to discover more from Troutwood, our speaker series is designed to work side-by-side with the Troutwood suite of investment, educational, and financial planning tools. Please visit troutwood.com to learn more. Now, here's Jean Natali. Welcome to the Troutwood Speaker Series. Today's guest, Jonathan Brelsford, is the Chief Investment Officer of the Pittsburgh Foundation. Uh, Let Jonathan have the honor of telling you more about the Pittsburgh Foundation, their mission, the organization. I'll just preface his introduction by saying it is a fantastic organization doing fantastic work with a fantastic team. During this episode, we are going to be unwrapping the institutional investment model and trying to bridge that conversation to choices that we as individuals make. Jonathan, welcome to Troutwood Live. Uh, Thanks for having me, Gene. It's nice to be here. Uh, The the pleasure is ours, and I I would love to to give you the honor of a short introduction. Tell us a little bit about yourself. Sure. Um, So uh, I'm the Senior Vice President of Finance and Investments at the Pittsburgh Foundation. The Pittsburgh Foundation is a community foundation, which um, is different than a lot of uh, foundations that you might be familiar with. Um, So those are typically private foundations. As a community foundation, we're a public charity, and we actually represent um, over 2,400 families that have established funds with us uh, in our 75-year, over 75-year history. Actually, we're in our 76th year, being founded in 1945. So those funds can act a lot like a private foundation. Um, and as such, the the underlying investments of those funds is really what I oversee and me and the team here oversee. So they're really driven by our donors. Uh, We actually have um, 80 different portfolios. Uh, I like to say we offer, we we operate um, uh, a lot of the ways a um, uh, asset manager might operate, right? So those 80 different accounts or portfolios represent these 2,400 uh, charitable funds that have been established here. When so, you say twenty four hundred charitable funds, mm-hmm. is that individuals like myself who who could set up a, a charity or per, support a cause that I'm passionate about? Absolutely. So the 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 funds themselves really range. Um, uh, they they range from here's our money that we want you to decide how what the Pittsburgh community needs, and and it's not just Pittsburgh. It's it's really southwestern Pennsylvania. Um, what the community needs. And then we have staff that goes out and finds what that need is and and makes uh, grants into the community. Um, Or it can be something that is uh, where you as a donor uh, stay involved with the fund and and really help us determine how to um, uh, spend that more, or I should say grant that money into the community. And it can be um, all over the world. We've actually had, um, you know, uh, individuals that started a fund that, that helped fund orphanages in Korea or educating education programs in India. Um, you know, our focus really is around uh, the the nonprofit community in Pittsburgh, though. And that's really what we're, we're set up to, to work with. So there are three dots to connect, it sounds like. The charitable giving, yep. the investment of those assets, and then the social cause that those investments or assets are directed to help. That's correct. Yeah. Can I, and I'm not sure if you're able to answer this question, is there a, a favorite or a near and dear 
charitable cause, maybe one that has a long history with the Pittsburgh Foundation or one that makes you smile when you think about it? Yeah. So the one that, well, because we're about perpetuity, uh, and this is what I like to, to bring up when I'm talking to donors um, about how focused we are on that. Um, uh, there's a fund here called the Milk Fund. Uh, it was actually started uh, prior to the founding of the, the, the foundation uh, and came to us as a, as a uh, essentially we became the administrators of it. The Milk Fund was designed to provide milk for um, uh, orphaned uh, children. And there are no more orphanages anymore. I mean, it's just not a part of our society, but there are homeless children. So what we have repurposed this fund towards is about supporting homeless children. Um, so it's really, it's been a, um, you know, it, it's kind of near and dear to my heart as a parent of four kids, knowing that um, we are, we have funds that are set up to help support um, homeless youth and that can come in a lot of different uh, contexts. Um, you know, a lot of people that um, you would not consider, you personally might not consider homeless, but in, in actuality have, uh, are at risk um, that, that can be affected by this. So it's, um, it's a pretty, pretty neat fund. That's very neat. The word perpetuity is important as well for everyone listening. That means to last long past any one of us, uh, to last forever, essentially. That is absolutely correct. It gives us a, a long time horizon to work with as an investor. And, and Jonathan, you know this, but to everyone listening there, there's a small group of college and high school students that are listening and following along live. Now they'll be asking um, questions for a 17, 18, 22, 25 year old perpetuity. It's, it's not a hundred percent accurate word to use, but it's okay to think at that, in that context at that young of an age. Absolutely. And, and certainly uh, I would myself, um, you know, when, uh, um, the, the way I think about perpetuity is past my lifetime at this point. But as someone who is who is younger, certainly a 70 year time horizon is close to as close to perpetuity as any of us can get. Right. Well, you know, here. So not only is the Pittsburgh Foundation set up in terms of investing the assets for perpetuity, the individuals, the donors are already thinking that way to be reaching out and saying the milk fund matters to me. I'd like to. Yeah you know, make my assets last in perpetuity? Yeah, I mean, we have, we, we take a consultative approach here. So um, a lot of times people are thinking more about that, that immediate need that they want to fulfill. And we bring them along towards that um, perpetual or endowment approach uh, because we think the community is, there is need now um, and there is need in the future. It will just be a different need, right? Mm-hmm. We're, we're gonna unwrap and back into that model. Uh, what what does a day look like? What what are your responsibilities for the Pittsburgh Foundation? Help our listeners understand, or just walk us through a day, a week, a month. Sure. So um, it can be a, a, re a relatively um, straightforward day. Uh, you know, the markets are. You know, I, I actually typically don't pay that close attention to markets because of our our time horizon. Um, so from a day-to-day -day basis, I'm not as concerned can, about can it. Can I make fireworks come off on the screen right now for anyone <laughs> listening to that statement? <laughs> so, um, but never, I mean, obviously I, I do pay attention on some level. Um, I need to understand what's influencing our returns and, and what that, what our managers, uh, you know, what, what I can expect out of our managers. So typically in a day-to-day, -day, um, it'll start with an internal meeting 
where we might be discussing, um, as it did this morning, the investment office, we're talking about the next um, investment committee meeting, which is happening at the end of this month. So we're uh, discussing the, the agenda for that meeting, what managers, if any, uh, we might be proposing to the committee and want to discuss um, where, they, where they sit, if there's any changes to a portfolio. So one of the things that is actually coming forward um, at this coming committee is we have a new portfolio we're going to be proposing, um, uh, and that requires its own investment policy statement. That portfolio is somewhat unique because it's going to have, uh, it'll be all equity um, because we have donors that, that have a desire and have a higher risk tolerance um, than we might otherwise um, uh, allow. Um, so we're putting this out there. Um, this this really is a genesis, um, uh, um, or has its genesis in conversations we have with our development donor services staff. So because we are a nonprofit, we are always and we need to raise money from the community to demonstrate um, our continued to, uh, community support. Um, so uh, we're talking to them about what are the needs uh, of our donor, what are, what are they looking for. Um, and that can also be one of the questions we have is how do we solve uh, for those needs and, and those questions that are coming up. And then the other part of my, my day really is spent um, discussing with investment managers, either um, investment managers that we have in the portfolio. So we are regularly touching base with them. We have actually over 60 managers um, that we work with in this, in our primary portfolio, just to be clear, um, we, we oversee 80 portfolios, but there are currently four, soon to be five that we manage internal to the foundation, meaning we select the investment managers for those portfolios um, and the specific mandates that, are, that were given. The remaining 75 are managed outside. We've delegated authority for the whole portfolio to uh, local investment advisors, or uh, we also work closely with uh, the local trust departments of BNY Mellon and PNC. Jonathan, when you say your your managers, to just put some context around that, um, if I'm an individual or a student, that would be like like me going to Vanguard and buying a mutual fund. If I buy the an S and P mutual fund or a growth mutual fund, that'd be my manager. Correct. Yeah. So we have in some of our portfolios, we utilize uh, Vanguard. Uh, primarily because of their fee um, uh, fee sensitivity, but we also utilize managers from all over the globe. So, boy, that's neat. Uh, to put to shape the team that you have working for with you, how big is your investment staff? And then also, given that broader goal, how big is the entire Pittsburgh Foundation staff? Uh, yeah, so the the entire staff of the foundation. Um, uh, so I'm gonna I'm gonna expand that a little um, because the Pittsburgh Foundation is actually uh, has a number of um, related organizations called supporting organizations. So we have the Pittsburgh Foundation proper. We also um, have supporting organizations. Um, one, the Forbes funds actually works very closely with the nonprofit community around uh, what their needs are and seeks to build capacity or build um, expertise within those nonprofits. Um, we also have another one called Neighborhood Allies, which does economic development in the community. Um, and then one that maybe some of the some of your uh, listeners or watchers of, of this webcast um, really uh, know, 
would be the Pittsburgh Promise. Uh, great organization. Yep. So um, I was actually fortunate enough to be here uh, at the foundation back in 2008 when um, the the Pittsburgh Promise first kicked off and they were looking for a home. Um, and so they came. We actually uh, worked very closely with um, the Pittsburgh Public School District um, and um, uh, UPMC. I, I don't know if how many people know, but the initial gift to found the Pittsburgh Promise actually came from the teachers union of the Pittsburgh Public School District. Um, oh, I absolutely never knew that. Um, now, obviously, the largest gift, the largest commitment came from UPMC and that we're extraordinarily thankful to them for for that gift to the community. But yeah, it was a it was a pretty neat, um, ambitious goal. So so that's the those are the supporting organizations. Um, the staff of the foundation itself, though, and um, or in total, including our supporting organizations, is about 80 people. The staff of the foundation is uh, just over 50. Um, and then uh, we have the, the investment staff really is um, a meager four. And I say meager, and that's because we actually oversee um, $1.2 billion in invested assets. Wow. Um, and that those assets are in those 80 portfolios that I spoke of. Um, the largest portfolio is the one that we spend a lot of our time on. We call the Legacy Fund um, is for over 400. Well, actually close to 400 million. We just made our distribution at the beginning of the year to, to drop it below uh, 400 million. So we're working our way back there. Jonathan, to, to frame how investing works, and I'll again throw this into the mind of a 22 year old who maybe doesn't invest, but is thinking of it. What was the size? You, you mentioned 1.2 billion. Uh, mm -hmm. What was the size when you joined the foundation? Um, yeah, so I joined the foundation uh, in 2004. Um, but when I actually started working with the um, uh, on the in the investment side of the business, um, it was 2007, and the size of our invested assets at that time were just under 500 million. That's um, and I say that investment growth and then the donor. Yeah. So I, I bring that up because uh, the very next year, 2008, saw the worst drawdown that the, that the foundation has experienced that I've experienced. Uh, we lost 38% stock market plus. Yeah. The the uh, the total our total assets dropped by 30% that year. Um, so we were we were down um, around 400. Well. Actually, the, the total assets were closer to 400 million. We actually, um, the, the, the nadir of our assets was on March 9th, um, which occurred, uh, or I should say, which brought us to about $390 million in invested assets. Mm -hmm. So that's, a, that's, a, that's when I, you know, the, the power of the investing uh, of, of the past, really the past 12 years, almost 13 years, um, in 12 years was uh, has been pretty significant. I would be remiss not to ask what your emotions were joining in 2007 then experiencing 2008. <laughs> <laughs> so, um, you know, I, I'd actually been working at Mellon in um, uh, the, on the on a credit desk looking at the, the money market um, at money market. Uh, um, I should say lending to money market uh, investors. So 
um, our providers. So we were, I was well aware of the potential stress that could happen in what actually is underpinning cash, um, which are these short duration uh, uh, loans. Um, so it actually didn't surprise me. I'd actually, we'd, we'd been warned about it and I, I'd had a number of discussions with, uh, with our staff and with our uh, investment consultant um, at the time. So uh, it was certainly concerning, but I felt with a lot of the, the efforts that were put in place really at the time, I mean, if you look back at September 2008, um, I was not as concerned. I was initially concerned in the probably the second or third week of September. But when when the it didn't break, like the monetary system didn't break at that point, I felt pretty sure we were going to make it out. So it was really more at that time. Um, I tracked certainly, you know, what the losses were on a weekly basis. Um, but most of what I was um, uh, convincing at trying to convince everybody of is though the market was dropping in in um, value, those underlying companies, we actually were still receiving donations. We were still we were investing assets at much better valuations at that time. I didn't see the market going to zero. You know, we still people were still going to buy cars. People are still going to build houses. Um, you know, you're you're going to go to the grocery store and buy food. Um, those things are all going to happen. Um, and the under the companies that are involved in that, you're just getting an opportunity to buy them at a at a better value. Same thing when I when I look back at March um, of this past year, um, when we saw the stock market crater, um, we take a very disciplined approach. We try to take a very disciplined approach to rebalancing our portfolio. So when we saw the opportunity, we actually put money to work um, a little bit early, uh, but I mean, early by about you know less than a week uh, from the, the bottom of the stock market at that time, so. There a couple of two, two important statements you made. We stuck with it. Uh, so you watched, you joined, you watched a $500 million portfolio drop to just below $400 million. Yep. And now it's 1.2 billion because you stuck with it. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, that, that just teaches you that to be disciplined um, in the, the face of pretty dramatic losses. Right. I mean, the other, the other aspect um, I'll just bring up is we have um, our spending policy, which is really what our goal is. Um, so we have a we have a goal of um, five percent plus inflation. So the, those two components, that five percent represents our spending policy. That's what we distribute from each fund generally every year. Um, but way the the balance that it's it's calculated upon is based on a three-year rolling average. So we we go back three years and it's actually calculated as of September 30th of the prior year. So when we did the calculation for 2021, what our the grants were going to be and what our essentially our budget for the coming year was based on, we looked at the prior three year, three 36 months balances of each fund, calculated that average. And that is the number that we use to calculate the spending policy off of. So in a rising market like we've had, we actually are spending less than 5% of the current balance of the fund, right? Mm -hmm. So, um, you know, you've got a, a nice up and to the right uh, line that you're, 
that you're working on, you could take it at that, that, that very tip, but if it drops as it did in 2008, uh, pretty substantially, um, you're going to be really impacted by that drop with a, with a 36 month average, you've smoothed that, that number out over, um, over those three years and allows a more consistent distribution into the community. It can delay some of the, some of the, you know, the, the aspects of a, in a very strong market like we have, but it also means that in March, I was able to tell the board of directors and all of our donors that their spending policy, um, even if we dropped a further 20% from where we were that day, or where we were at our lowest, if we dropped a further 20%, we would still have about the same distribution amount as we had previously, because we had delayed pay, the paying out on the prior increases in value and the and 2019 had been such a fantastic year. Mm -hmm. So taking these components, when you're speaking investing, you're speaking about long-term investing. It's important we make that. Um, when you talk about your donors throughout 2008, a very difficult market time, money was still coming into the fund. And to tie that to individuals who might be listening, that's the same as putting that paycheck in each week, not, you know. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, and, and, uh, my 401k, you know, I still contribute to it on a monthly basis, right? I, I actually like the fact that, well, first of all, it's automatic, comes out of my paycheck. Yep. <laughs> but uh, it doesn't, I, I don't even think about it if the market's going up or down. Like I said, if it goes down, that just means that I'm able to buy in at a lower valuation than I did the prior month. Um, and I still have, you know, I've got another at least 10 years, I hope, until I, until I retire. So, um, you know, in my mind, that's still a pretty long time. And Jonathan, as you're even taught in spending policy, the money going out, you're still making your, your contributions, your charitable payouts could be the same as us as individuals, you know, needing to pay ourselves a little, but as we're talking, there's, there's no panic in your voice. There's very little emotion. And you just casually referenced two 30% stock market drops. Yep. Well, I mean, it was not calm in either of those situations. <laughs> Well, and in some cases, our donors are are upset, right? They they've just given us money and they've seen it lose value, and they had you know goals that they wanted. They wanted to give that money out. And we've we've um, talked to them about that. We actually had made some changes to our own structure. Um, we uh, um, in two thousand eight, when that occurred, we actually hadn't segregated our, what we call our spending policy from the investment portfolio. Um, in 2008, uh, I oversaw the formation of what we call our grant making fund and our intermediate fund, both really in recognition that our donors, when they give us money, have a shorter time horizon, have a, like I said, they want to give money next year, or as soon as they give it to us, they want to turn around and, and, and put it out the door. So our grant making fund is effectively like a money market fund. We right now at the balance is uh, it's the beginning of the year. It's about sixty million dollars. It'll be spent down throughout the year to slightly below thirty million. So right um, about that five percent number you mentioned earlier. Yep. Yep. So that that sits in cash and is ready for us and our donors whenever they're you know whenever the money is to go out the door. The intermediate fund has what we call a, a time horizon of three to seven years, which is the expectation during that time you might see a loss. And it's because it's, so it's got more market exposure, but it's still, um, you know, for for growth. 
But within three to seven years, at the very least, the principal will have been earned back. Um, we've actually been pretty successful with that fund um, just because of how it's invested uh, in very liquid uh, equities and mostly fixed income assets. Um, so it's kind of the reverse of our of our perpetual fund. Um, and that 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 has performed very well throughout this period of time. And Jonathan, it's you have a plan. This isn't just an arbitrary six percent. It was directly correlated with the five percent spending pool. You have a plan to grow the other assets. Um, yeah, I should probably talk a little bit about um, why five percent, right? So that's become a rule of thumb uh, in the institutional space and, and for for perpetual funds. Um, it, it basically is deemed to be the amount of um, distribution you can make on a perpetual basis from a portfolio and still make it back, right? Um, so on an annual basis, if, you know, um, you know, it's funny, the way I think about wealth these days is if I know if I had a million dollars, I feel pretty confident I could take $50,000 a year out of that million dollars and for in perpetuity, take that as a cash, cash stream, right? Is that, is that um, assuming that a million dollars is invested or under your mattress? Uh, invested, right? It's got to be. It's got to have uh, market exposure. Maybe we can talk about that. Um, just because the other the other component of our spending policy that or our target, I should say, is that you know, uh, inflation. Um, that's really to ensure that you know that five percent today is worth the same. Um, in 10 years, say, right? So we want to make sure that we're tracking with inflation because, you know, as every, I hope everybody who is, who is uh, watching understands that a dollar today is worth more than a dollar tomorrow because inflation just eats it away, right? Um, we've been fortunate um, for the most part, inflation, uh, you know, as it's officially measured, um, uh, hasn't been impacting us. There's a lot of deflationary pressure, not least of which is technology. Um, you know, my my cell phone uh, has more power than my first computer, right? Mm -hmm. um, and that that's a deflationary pressure. But the reality is, you know, the first iPhone, I think, was about 500 bucks. Current iPhones cost, you know, the the top line 1300. So, um, you know, that is another type of inflation, right? So you're going to want to, you're going to want to get the latest iPhone, right? If that's the case, you want to make sure that you're keeping track and, and the ability to do that, right? So hopefully that $500 is, is now worth $1,300. There's some important analogies to unwrap. Um, I hope that my students from, from Pitt are zeroed in right now because <laughs> one, the importance of inflation. If you are not investing the spending power of that dollar, you, you don't have a chance of keeping up with it. Dollar data is worth less in, in, in the future. I, I loved the analogy where you said, if I had a million dollars, I would have confidence if that was invested, that I could pull 50,000 a year, be it salary, living expenses, and have confidence in both the investments and that 50,000 being there. Those yep. are such important concepts to get in the minds of individuals also. Yeah, and, and so that's really our, you know, kind of the philosophy that undergirds our, our whole approach. Which so. you've put some slides together, Jonathan. Do we want to, is now a good time to dive in and just show the listeners, the viewers, kind of a behind the scenes snapshot? Sure. So, um, uh, you know, I may be the, the um, 
the staff person who leads the investment office. Um, but I am really uh, the, the my boss uh, outside of the boss of the foundation, Lisa Schroeder, who's our our president and CEO. My boss is the chair of the investment committee. I don't know if do I have do I have control here to, to do that? You do, yeah. There we go. Right, there we go. Well, I so, kind of like where you're going with this statement. I can I'm, I, I, I apologize for having, but is ultimately the boss, right. it's the the goals of the organization, right? The investors. This absolutely the right. So, um, you know, unlike a for-profit company, um, a nonprofit is really uh, doesn't have shareholders. So the people that really tell us re really where we get our marching orders from is from our board of directors. They're they are trustees of uh, of our of our nonprofit, um, and they uh, they form various governance committees underneath the board of directors. They they there are two committees. Um, that uh, I directly interface with. One is the investment committee, and that's where um, that really drives the investment program. Um, and some of them are members of the board of directors, and some of them aren't. Right? I'm, I'm, I have the great fortune of working with a fantastic committee that that are all professional uh, investments, and uh, in, in, I should say investors, uh, so involved in the investment industry. Um, and then we have an audit committee that oversees the work. Um, of the whole foundation, including uh, the work of my staff and the and the investment manager. So the audit committee and the investment committee together provide oversight over the various people involved with um, uh, with the investments. And so if you if you go down one level, we have the investment staff. And like I said, it's investment and accounting staff, I should say, um, because I, I don't want it to um, certainly not miss them. There's a lot of work that happens on the operation side to ensure that when we receive money in, it goes where it should be in the portfolio it's meant to be. Um, and, and any changes in value are accounted for. Like that, I'm that's, sorry? That's where you are in this picture, right, John? That is correct. That's correct. Um, so I guess like uh, right in here, right? Um, so in addition to that, because, uh, you know, for, for two, a couple of reasons, um, you know, a staff of four on the investment side overseeing $1.2 billion is a lot, particularly when it comes to the selection of managers within those portfolio, those portfolios we ourselves manage. So we have actually hired and worked with a consultant. Um, uh, the consultant we use is actually Pavilion, which is a subsidiary of Mercer. Um, and we get access to their staff. Right. And their expertise. So, um, you know, if we're there's a particular question we have, um, we can we can turn to them, someone who has more a deeper expertise in that. And we don't have to hire that person internally um, and we can kind of get it at scale working with our consultant. Um, similarly, we work with we have a as a nonprofit where we are um, well, we're not required to, but it's certainly best practice to have uh, an external audit. Um, so we have an annual audit that that validates our processes as well as validates the the values that we report uh, on our financials. So we work very closely with the auditor and the audit committee. Um, but ultimately, that money we don't select any specific assets ourselves, right? Um, we are actually hiring investment managers to do that. The only exception to that is if we decide to implement an index strategy. Um, and we purchase an ETF um, 
in the past we have purchased individual bonds, but that that gets more complex the, on a larger portfolio. So we don't do that anymore now. So That's important, Jonathan, and, and timely because just dating our conversation, we're in the midst of the GameStop, the AMC conversation, and you you're buying portfolios, you're buying diversification. It sounds like, which is many. Right. Well, and, and I really the the where we spend the bulk of our time is on, um, you know, uh, is asset allocation, right? Um, the there are a number of studies um, that have shown that eighty five to ninety percent of a portfolio's return is determined by asset allocation, not individual security selection, right? Well, isn't the, isn't there a, another eighty five percent of us lose money if we try to trade individual stocks? So there's <laughs> well, there's that. <laughs> um, Could yeah, you define I mean, asset allocation for anyone who maybe has never heard that term but says, wait, that sounds pretty good. If 85 to 90 percent of the Pittsburgh Foundation's investment return is coming from asset allocation, I should know what that means. Yeah, well, actually, before we get there, let me just finish talking about this structure just for a second. Um, so when at the bottom and I've mentioned trustees as our board of directors as a group of trustees, there's also trustees that we work with for trusts of which we are the beneficiary, and that, that would be BNY Mellon and PNC. But we also work with local investment advisors as well as investment managers that we ourselves select. But ultimately, the assets themselves are held at custodians, right? So that's really the bottom layer. We actually do invest in individual securities. We just don't select them ourselves, right? So we, we delegate for a total portfolio to an investment, a local investment advisor or trustee, or we delegate a very small slice of a portfolio that we manage to a specific manager who themselves selects individual securities. So I have a way to report and figure out, do we have any exposure to GameStop? Yes, I can guarantee you we have exposure to GameStop. Do I really care? No, because it's actually very, a very small slice of the total portfolio. Well, that's interesting. And, and everyone listening probably just, do you, do you still have the exposure to GameStop? I'm sure I do, um, partly because we utilize index funds in a number of our portfolios. And so those index funds hold components of it, right? Um, additionally, you know, and that would be a, maybe a less um, valuable uh, because it's passive. They're, they're going to ride with the market. Um, uh, but we do utilize active managers that may have held um, uh, some portfolios. We actually utilize a quantitative manager that I suspect um, was holding uh, GameStop maybe for shorter periods of time. Um, uh, but you know, it, it's that's just the 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 way of the um, landscape. So if I, I don't want to go on, before you go to the next slide, I have four questions, but I don't want to interrupt again. So so keep going. Give me the thumbs up when. Okay. Um, so you asked about asset allocation, and that's really um, where the meat of the work that we do comes in, right? I don't. This doesn't change. It changes actually very infrequently, um, but it is something that we. This is you know when we were first designing our portfolio, this is where we spent a lot of time. What do we want to to look at? So there are you know these are five very basic categories of of investments that. Pretty much any portfolio that we look at is going to have some component, um, some some exposure to. 
So this is our target, what we call our target asset allocation. And when I talk about rebalancing, this is what we're rebalancing to the, the equity exposure, the fixed income exposure, real assets and diversifying strategies and cash. So our target for this portfolio is 0% to cash. That's not because we don't like cash. We get cash in this portfolio holds cash for periods of time, but we don't really want to have cash because it really does not add value to the strategy that we're trying to achieve. The base component of this and the largest component, as you can see here, is almost 60% equity. That's going to drive the growth of our portfolio. We all know that, well, maybe we don't, but over time, an investment in equity is the best thing that you can do. It's, it's going to return the, uh, have the best return over a long period of time. It's got, you're getting, um, you know, the equity of a, of a corporation is really where you can get the um, most return. Um, the uh, fixed income, but the problem with, I, I should say, the problem with equity is it can be very volatile. As we know, we've seen just this past year, like you said, a 30% drop and local equity markets actually across the across the board internationally as well. So, you know, how do we dampen that volatility? We actually then use fixed income for two reasons. One, it should provide a steady source of return. Unfortunately, fixed income um, interest rates at below 1% or around 1% for 10 years, um, that's not going to get us to that 5% return, let alone inflation adjusted. So we've deprecated that, that importance over time, as you'll see. Um, but it does have a very other important part. It is the anchor to the portfolio. It's called a deflationary hedge. When you experience serious drawdowns in equity markets, people flood to fixed income. They want to go to that safer asset class, which fixed income provides. And as a result, you'll see it'll increase in value. Um, it's also the source from which we can actually derive our spending policy on an annual basis. So we don't have to turn to the volatile equity markets to liquidate assets in order to get that cash flow. We can actually turn to fixed income. The other component, remember we have uh, um, an inflation as a component of our goal. So real assets provide that inflationary hedge, right? So you've got growth in the center, you've got deflationary on one side and you've got inflationary hedging on, on the other side, which in total helps us grow the portfolio over time. Lastly, the diversifying assets are really um, uh, those that I would say are less correlated and they're just offer different sources of return to any of the other asset classes, right? So um, we're looking for market neutral funds or macro funds, um, again, that, that should make money um, at any time uh, um, when maybe equities aren't or when real real assets aren't or when fixed income doesn't so and that's the allocation ties into a word we used just a short while ago diversification mm -hmm. yes so all of these asset classes we expect to have different return profiles different correlations to each other and overall give us a, a longer um broader sense of uh, investing so the other um, I'll, I'll just tell you, this is how we were invested as of the end of the year. And you can actually see, oh, there's that cash. It's at 7% because at year end, we receive, that's when we receive, I think in the last month of the year, we receive about 70% of um, all donations. It's because it ha happens to be like when we, you know, 
for tax consequences at year end, we as a public charity, people use us as a way to um, defease their tax uh, uh, tax bill. Um, uh, and you can see also that you know our real assets have shrunk. Again, this is because inflation has not been an issue, so we're we're less concerned about it. Um, as well as fixed income itself has become less important, right? So again, the bulk of the portfolio is being driven by equities. It's where we expect, um, excuse me, expect to have that return in the future. So Jonathan, it shows a little bit of flexibility versus the prior chart, the target policy versus the actual markets move, stay calm throughout. Absolutely. So then the, the last uh, slide that I just wanted to show around asset allocation is just how it's changed over time. And you can see, you know, it does fluctuate and it has changed. Um, like at the start, we had 10% um, uh, in real assets. At the end, it's about 6%. Um, we had about 10% in fixed income. It's now about 15%. Um, some of that is driven by the different underlying strategies that we've used that we haven't gotten into. Um, you know, people talk about hedge funds and private equity as alternative sources of return. Um, we actually do utilize both of those uh, in our portfolio, but uh, I don't know if we have time to, to, to get too deeply there. Um, the only comment that I'll make about hedge funds is they're not an asset class. They're actually um, just a, a structure, an, uh, an investment structure, um, one that's allowed to go short um, the market uh, some, somewhat maybe exclusively versus um, uh, one that is, um, you know, a long only uh, mutual fund. And private equity, the importance of private equity to institutions is that we have such a long time horizon, we can use what is, um, or we can try to attain what is called the illiquidity premium. That is, you there is, a, there is an identified premium for investments that last for um, uh, a long period of time, right? You can actually earn more than you can and with public markets that, that are have a shorter duration and a shorter time horizon. So- John, I wanna tiptoe around a question here because when you say hedge funds in that light, um, the hedge funds that are managing assets on behalf of the Pittsburgh Foundation are earning money or a part of a bigger picture to earn money for these 2,400 Absolutely. So there, there's good. And that money's ultimately going into these charities, into these social causes, into these areas of need. Yep. I have the I have the benefit of working in the investment field, which I absolutely love, trying to figure out how to do this better every day, um, knowing that what I'm doing is actually accruing to the community uh, and the need within the community. So it's a, I, I'm extremely fortunate. It's, and, and, the, and the authenticity in your voice, it sounds like a dream job. It, it is. So uh, um, I was asked once, you know, uh, would you quit your job if you won the lottery? And I said, no. So powerful. Um, so that's, you know, that's really around asset allocation, kind of what I was uh, interested to talk about. I don't know if there's any quite you, you would said there were questions that were coming in. Maybe we should uh, answer those. You uh, you addressed a great question that came in from one of our students. How do you balance earning a return on the foundation's portfolios while also having enough money? I think you hit that pretty effectively with that equity fixed income asset allocation. Yeah. So the, the specifically though, again, I go back to we segregate 
our assets that are short-term in nature, right? That we see as either our donors have identified or we have identified that are gonna go out to grantees in the next zero to two years, we segregate them in the lowest risk um, portfolio that we have, our grant making fund. So it has, um, you know, its goal is capital preservation above all else. Um, you know, and during when interest rates were really low, you know, we were earning 10 basis points a year, a year for holding cash. That can be depressing. For <laughs> anyone you, not, you think about how low that, how little money six million dollars can earn in a year for ten basis points. Um, however, um, this past year, in the past couple of years, we've been earning a couple percent on that portfolio. So it, you know, it it, it fluctuates. And for anyone unfamiliar with basis points, one basis point is oh, yeah, sorry. of one percent. <laughs> right. Right. It's a it's a very small number. One basis point is a very small number, even on sixty million dollars. <laughs> Jonathan, can you jump to your final slide? Because I have seen your presentation beforehand. Uh, oh, yeah. Yeah, I forgot about this. So um, this is actually one of my favorite slides. Um, it shows uh, the asset values of the foundation. Um, from our founding in 1945, uh, it actually appears to be zero. Um, I think the first, uh, the first year our assets were about $2 million. Um, up through uh, 2019. So these are all based on, uh, these are numbers that are based on our um, annual reports that we publish. Uh, that lower darker um, line, uh, uh, an area graph actually shows the value of the assets, our total foundation. So this is not just the invested assets, it's all also fixed assets um, and, and the underlying supporting organizations. But the reality is the bulk of it is actually investments. Um, and that top lighter area is what we call or is the cumulative grants so the grants in total that have gone out the door um added up over time so um it's almost uh it's almost double uh what our total assets were at the end of 2019. jonathan so let me so let's say it's 1957 and we've changed our mind. You and I, if we are the donor at that time, could have said, I've changed my mind. I'm going to just retire, live happily ever and spend all this money. And no yep. one would have blamed us. Instead, look what happened. That's a well, number of cumulative grants. Absolutely. So the, there's, there's two things at work here. One is the compounding effect of that. Um, you know, we're only spending... Um, five percent of of a thirty six month average. So you know it's a it's less than hundred. It's le much less than hundred percent. It's less than ninety five percent tip in any given year of what the total assets are. Mm -hmm. um, and we're also gaining new contributions, right? So there's a there's an additional aspect to this that we are Pittsburgh is extremely fortunate to have um, you know have had the. Uh, leaders in the community that started a community foundation back in 1945, but also along the way, the donors and families that have stepped up and, and donated assets to the foundation for the various causes that we support. Um, the other the other thing I'll say is, you know, as a community foundation, we truly do represent the community. I almost unequivocally, I mean, I would be shocked if 99% of all nonprofits um, did not receive um, uh, a grant from us, right? So 
Then sure, there are non, some nonprofits that haven't received a grant from us, but by by far the vast majority of nonprofits in the in the Pittsburgh community and the broader region have received grants from the Pittsburgh Foundation, and that's a uh, that's just a testament to our donors. That's not us as a foundation, um, but that's the vision of our donors um, in in setting up funds with us. It's a powerful statement. When I when I see this chart, I, I think investing is a long term relationship and it works if you stick with it. Yeah, absolutely. Um, we've got a bunch of questions in the queue, Jonathan, but just I want to tighten up on I just took four notes that maybe this will kind of rapid fire. So we get to the questions in the queue. You had mentioned the word custodian as part of the, the big picture. Mm -hmm. For anyone unfamiliar with that term, what is a custodian? What is the role of the custodian? Yeah, so the custodian actually holds the legal record um, uh, of the investments that we have, right? So, so for example, back in the day when they used to issue stock certificates, and this is really how custodians ar ar arose, you know, we as a, you know, particularly for a bearer bond, right? If for those that you don't know, a bearer bond, if you hold it, you can actually, there's a little coupon that's attached to it. Um, you would clip that, you would cut that coupon off and send it in or go to the bank that had issued the issued the bond and get your, your interest payment. As, as an institution, we wouldn't want to hold that, right? I mean, I would keep it in my desk. Um, you know, somebody could come in and take it. So what a custodian does is they actually securely hold those those investments, right? Those assets are, are now called securities. So in the present day, really what it does, what they do is they they have the legal, they hold the legal title for us and work with all of the other service providers that that allow the, um, or, or that notify, you know, that a GameStop, that we actually own 10 shares of GameStop. It's held by the Pittsburgh Foundation in one of our custodial accounts that one of our investment managers works with. Right. So it's a it's they're they're a service provider, um, but a very critical one to ensure um, the the seamless transition. You know, in case, for example, I get abducted by aliens, I prefer abducted by aliens than being hit by a bus. I might come back. Um, so so if I get abducted by aliens, there's still somebody can work with a custodian to ensure the proper administration of, of our assets. That, that's important. But when you mentioned hedge funds or Vanguard, it's not the hedge fund of the Vanguard that holds your assets. It's that they're safe in a custodian. That hedge is correct. Vanguard invests them, directs the investor. Right. And we work with, and that's the case for mutual funds as well as individual securities or bonds, right? Or, or ETFs. Excellent. Um, just two, two more, just quick on the investment consultant. You, had, mm -hmm. you mentioned consultant. What, you, what does your consultant do? So our consultant, we work with them. They, they have uh, experience with, um, you know, they have, they've made investments in modeling software. So help us determine, you know, different scenarios uh, in, a, in a certain, certain circumstance, right? I mean, I've run Monte Carlo, um, which is a, an analysis of potential outcomes, statistical analysis of potential outcomes for a portfolio. It's very tedious. They have the software that helps do that. So when we're doing asset modeling and we want to know what the correlations are between asset classes, they help us kind of figure out, maybe optimize where we where we need to be. Um, they also track um, 
most of the universe of investment managers. I say most, it's not all, um, but they've, they have exposure so that if we're doing a, an, an investment manager search, we can turn to them and help us cull down from literally tens of thousands of investment managers down to maybe the three or four that we would want to spend time looking looking at and talking to, right? And they don't actually touch or manage the money. They're that independent voice. And, correct. Correct. And they they help. They provide you know um, good advice to the to the committee. They also do macro research around what or economic research, I should say. Um, so if I need, you know, I'm looking for data regarding a specific uh, economic outcome, they can provide that, um, you know, or, or a particular situation. Additionally, um, they, they help uh, just from the standpoint of underlying operations, right? So um, there are a number of legal agreements that we sign in regard to our investments. So they help us, you know, manage that and, and complete them. Again, it's it, they're an extension of our staff. Um, there are any number of institutions that don't work with a consultant, and all of that work would have to be done internally. So we'd have to hire people to do that, and it's it's certainly reasonable at a at a certain scale, um, but at our scale and complexity, it it is extremely helpful um, to work with a consultant, and it is just more cost effective. And, and independent voices are always helpful in a conversation. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Um, the, the last, there was more just a note I wrote down was you'd mentioned index funds, which they own all the companies in a pre-specified index. Mm -hmm. With GameStop, it's interesting. BlackRock, Charles Schwab, Vanguard are three of the largest owners of GameStop. And none that, of that did not surprising. GameStop was worth more than company XYZ. It's because GameStop was right. in an index. Right. And if GameStop had, um, had retained its value, right, at its peak, it would have become a much larger holding in all of those um, funds. They would have had to go out and buy them on a regular basis, right? So one of the things that an index provider is doing is managing that exposure, particularly in a volatile, um, uh, in, a, in a volatile stock. They'll they'll still try and do it, but it's going to be you know when it's as volatile as as GameStop was. I imagine that it's not. They're not going to closely track it as much as as much as this, as if it was um, even Tesla, which which is still had a good run last year. Um, but has maintained its value, uh, relative value, more than than GameStop. That, that leads well into some some students who submitted questions beforehand, Jonathan, when they heard we were having this conversation. Uh, the, the first is, in a world where investing is becoming more accessible, are we going to reach a point where it becomes too accessible? Is last week, if, if I frame the question that we have, we reached that point? Um, I would say that it's never too accessible. I think, you know, the question can become um, when you get into manias, I think it's more about education and understanding what you're buying um, as with anything, right? Um, uh, you know, having a driver's license and, and getting access to a car, um, everybody should have access to transportation. Um, regardless of who they are, we just want to ensure that they know how to drive a car, right? Mm. Um, you know, they can cause damage to themselves or to others if it's not operated properly. Similarly with investing, I, you know, I don't, I, I think that's, um, that's maybe a little too glib, um, but I do think that investing should be available to all. Um, there are certain aspects of investing that I think have been appropriately um, uh, mediated. Um, when you talk about options and like, um, the ability to to purchase a, a future a potential call 
on on a on a, on a stock um, or put on a stock. I think those to those can add leverage, very strong leverage to a portfolio, and and lead to great gains, but also um, if employed and poorly, significant losses uh, on a much larger scale than than anybody really should be doing um, without a lot of education. I mean, the the one of the most important things that I've um, you know heard is you should really understand what you're investing in. If you don't understand it, if you truly don't understand it, um, you're speculating. And so speculating is a lot like gambling, right? You don't have a, if you don't have a clear view of why a stock, why you want to own a stock um, uh, and understand how that corporation makes money, um, I think then, then you're really uh, erring on the side of speculation. So, um, you know, one of the concerns I, you know, that, the important long-term, I'm looking at this question here, the important long-term implications of the rise in retail trading and Reddit um, stocks is more that there is this, um, you know, people are are buying because other people are buying, right? Um, mm -hmm. That not necessarily, you know, and, and that there are, there are things called, there's a, there's a, a factor called momentum um, and that, that can be a positive force in investing. Mm -hmm. Um, but that's, you know, you don't want to buy a stock just because somebody else bought it. Um, I, I speculate in, in the, um, you know, with GameStop, it's, uh, being classified as a short squeeze or even a gamma squeeze, which we won't get into, but when a short squeeze, what you're doing is you're trying to force the people who are short the stock, who have sold it to have to cover their positions by buying the stock. And that causes the stock to increase in value. Right. So if you're involved in that, what you're really looking to do is at some point, you know, if, if to if it's done purely right, you force them to cover their short by you buying the stock. They've got to buy it back. So they're buying it back from you. But oftentimes in this, what happens is it runs up a lot higher as, a, as it did with GameStop. It, I think at one point it what, was over five hundred dollars a share. Yep. Um, you know, if you, if the person who was on the other side of that trade was not covering their short, that means they were long. They were going long at $500 a share in GameStop because other people thinking that they were going to join this, this train ride to the top. Not Nothing goes up forever. So um, somebody uh, was on the other side of that trade, bought at $500 a share, and is now sitting on a loss of over $400 a share. And that's... If they did it because you know, their neighbor was doing it. Mm -hmm. Right. So um, I, I don't, to go back to the original question, I, I think, um, I don't think it's gone too far. I just think this is just a, this is education and, and hopefully people didn't get hurt. Um, I think I, you know, I have concerns about the, the gamification of trading that Robin Hood has done, but um, there's an aspect to that, that it's really, there's some good education there too. So um yeah, I, I'll, I'll get off my soapbox. Um, well, you lead well into our next question because you so calmly talked about events like 2008, March of 2020. How do institutions take away the emotions of investing that individuals face? What, what lessons could an individual take away um, from that calmness? Well, so, so partly is having a plan, right? So if you're putting, um, again, I talk about, uh, we have our, our perpetual fund, our legacy fund, and we have our grant making fund, right? 
that grant making fund is for cash for those those grants that we're going to be making in the coming year and the legacy fund is that long-term portfolio um i would be more concerned you know i was really concerned at the time like i mentioned back in 2008 about money markets seizing up if that was the case then i'd be really concerned about a grant making fund and the ability to actually pay bills um, but that wasn't the case that turned, you know, there was a lot of, there were enough supports put in place. So then it just became a normal market correction. I knew the legacy fund or the legacy fund didn't exist at the time, but I knew our portfolio was going to drop in value. Um, so one of the, one of the things that we do is we actually segregate our assets into time horizon portfolios so that we're fully aware that, you know, in the short run, you know, these assets could drop in value, but in the long run, they will be greater in value. Um, whereas our, our other assets, the ones that we need more immediately are protected. So the, the, the learning you can take from that is don't you know, put at risk those assets that, that you need um, on a, in a short-term uh, short manner. Okay. Um, a plan and understand where you're putting that money to work. Absolutely. Right. So, so to that point, and the way we codify that as an institution, I mentioned it earlier, was our investment policy statement. The investment policy statement is something that, um, you know, we, the, that we as staff, we work with our consultant and the investment committee to agree on for a specific portfolio. It has a goal. It has that then that goal then drives the underlying risk assumptions. And then that then drive those risk assumptions drive the underlying asset allocation. Right. And then all together, everybody, this is basically the plan um, that we reference all the time on a regular basis. Like a, that target allocation that I showed earlier, that is derived entirely from our investment policy statement. Um, Institutional. So it's really about, you know, we go back to. I'm sorry. So an institutional investment policy statement sounds a lot like a financial mm -hmm. plan for an individual. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, the, the, we have we have one added benefit that individuals do not have, and that as a nonprofit, we don't face um, taxation for our, our investments. Right. So, you know, we can be very short term in nature. We don't have short term capital gains or long term capital gains. We're actually the beneficiary of that because our donors can donate appreciated stock to us without having to take a step up in basis and, and incur a, a significant tax bill and yet get a full write-off on their on their taxes for it. Um, but that's just a that's just a nuance of that. But it is it is very much a, like a financial plan for an individual. I mean, an, an individual, if they work with their financial advisor, should also have an investment policy statement that their investment advisor is working from. Um, that's also part of it. Right. Again, it's a it's a plan on how to actually invest money that that correlates risk to understood uh, investment or asset classes that everybody is on board with. Right. Whether that's, you know, something as benign as a bond or something as esoteric as art. There are some investment policy statements that invest in art. We don't, but there are some that do. Jonathan, I like that question. Um... Let me actually, I'm going to jump back to the one that was just on the board because I, I liked it and I know that I think you probably like it as well. Uh, what, in your opinion, is the most underrated piece of financial advice for young investors? Let's just, let's delete an investor, just say individuals. Yeah. Um, 
you'll hear it all the time, but you know, compounding returns or compound interest is a very, very powerful thing. I just, I, I mean, that last slide I showed demonstrates it, mm -hmm. um, but it is, uh, it seems to take forever, right? You, I don't know if anybody has an investment account, you're working with it and it's just, it's going up in value, but it's not going up as much as you want. But if you look back over a period of time, I mean, I'm, you know, 55. Um, I remember when I received my first share of, or I received a couple shares of Procter & Gamble stock. My grandfather um, worked for Procter & Gamble. And so it's kind of a part of our family at this point. Um, and, you know, it was worth about $1,000 at that time. It's now worth quite a bit more than that. Um, uh, and it's something that I feel very, you know, I look, I, cause I didn't do anything with it. Right. I just sat there and held it. I reinvested the dividends. So all of that money has continued to compound the dividends, bought more shares, um, uh, of that stock. And it's been, um, uh, it's just been, you know, phenomenal for me that, and I also started investing in my 401k as soon as I could. And, and as frustrating as it was to see it be very small when I was in my twenties, it's now something that is, um, I feel, um, is an important part of my, my retirement plan. I fireworks again, right there. Uh, cause that if you, if you stick with it, it works. Um, right. And that, that can be very hard. You're, you're, you're young. Uh, there's lots of demands. Uh, you start to have a family, you want to buy a house, uh, you have kids, you want to send them to college, but you know, that, that persistent effort, uh, will pay off in, future, um, uh, just future sanity and um, uh, discomfort. <laughs> In a world of the pursuit of instant gratification, it's so difficult, but so important. Jonathan, I, I like this final question. Uh, what would you say are some of the biggest differences between working for a nonprofit versus a for-profit? You have experience in both. Mm -hmm. uh, and it, don't, don't feel any pressure to answer the second part, the which do you prefer? Uh, well, you know, again, the, 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 I've got, a, I've had a long and varied career. Um, uh, uh, I've worked for a number of different nonprofits or different for-profits, not just in the, the, the finance space. Um, you know, there, there is a more immediacy to it. I mean, the benefit of working at a, at a foundation and institution is it does have that longer term, um, focus. It is, it has the same the same pressures um, that you have in a for-profit uh, space. I think to, to be perfectly honest, um, you know, what happens within a nonprofit, there's a, and, and foundations are, are unique, or the community foundations are unique in that aspect. Nonprofits themselves uh, face so many pressures from regulation and need, um, and just a constant need to, to, to get money from donors. Um, that may not understand the underlying operating complexities of, of that nonprofit. Um, so they, they push the organization in different ways, um, you know, that maybe have it stray from its mission. So it's a little, it can be much tougher, I think, to run a nonprofit than it can be to run a for-profit. For-profit, relatively straightforward. You make your customers happy. You give a good, you give them a good product you're going to make money as long as your your operations are are in order. With non with nonprofits, your customers, your clients are actually 
may be the beneficiaries of somebody else's um, uh, um, generosity, right? So they're not necessarily making, you know, choosing to purchase from a nonprofit. The nonprofit itself has actually got to go to people who are who have wealth, philanthropists or people like the, the Pittsburgh Foundation, convince them that what they're doing is good and, and effective. Um, and that that is a that's a tough, very tough um, process fundraising. Um, the people that are good at it, um, I have um, I take my hats off to them because they're amazing people. Um, uh, and then the people who work in nonprofits, it, it's it's utterly I mean, it's five times more complex, I think, than a for profit business um, because of those differing uh, those differing factors. Um, and yet um, I, I prefer the work that I do at the foundation. Oh, it's um, that is very apparent listening to you, Jonathan. Um, the other the other aspect that that's different pay is often um, less within the nonprofit space. I think that's it, it's unfortunately erroneous um, because uh, or it's a it's a uh, false dichotomy. Um, but that's just the way that's just the way it works. Um, in order to achieve your mission, nonprofits often face a lot of, like I said, a lot of different pressures and have to, um, in a lot of ways, you know, um, I, I have to, I'm going to get on my soapbox again. There's a, there was a commercial, um, that, you know, showed a, a woman who was approaching retirement saying, Oh, what am I going to do in retirement? Oh, I think I'm going to start a nonprofit. That has got to be the hardest thing you could possibly do um, to start a nonprofit. It is much harder to start a nonprofit than it is to start a for-profit business, right? Because if you're going to start a for-profit business, you have a pretty good idea that someone wants to pay you for it. If you want to start a nonprofit business, there's a need that you're looking to fill. You're not even sure anybody wants to fund. Mm -hmm. So, um, uh, again, I, I I'm, I'll get back off my soapbox, but that's that that demonstrates the, in my mind, the complexity of running a nonprofit. Well, you you look, or we could look at someone in your role or the work that the Pittsburgh Foundation does, and say, boy, that's easier. I wish I could do that, and it's anything, but it's a ton of hard work. There's there are um, I work with some amazing people um, that do a lot of amazing work. I mean, that are really um, dedicated to the task of you know, identifying uh, the need in our community. And there, there is some stark need, particularly these days, um, you know, with uh, literally millions of people who are unemployed now that, that weren't this time last year, um, all facing, you know, a, a circumstance or, or nonprofits are facing a circumstance where giving is lower um, and need is that much higher. So, um, you know, it's a, it's, um, I don't know. It's it, you're right. It's not easy work. So. Well, Jonathan, before or as we prepare here to wrap up, let's. Um, I like to use the word humanize, and I don't mean that in any negative context. But you know, here you are. We're talking casually about the 1.2 billion dollar foundation you manage, which is not a small amount of money. Um, I'm curious, what was Plan B? So, if you weren't, you know, <laughs> you're investing these assets, would you be an astronaut? Um, or what, what was well, playing? you know, oddly, that was what I went to uh, Carnegie Mellon for. I was uh, I I went to CMU as a physics major with the intention of pursuing that dream of being an astronaut. Um, I realized I that astronaut part. <laughs> <laughs> I, I realized fairly quickly that I I that was not 
um, what I wanted to do. Um, but, um, you know, Carnegie Mellon was a great place to be. And I ended up uh, pursuing a degree in um, uh, finance with a focus on investments. Um, so um, ultimately did that for a period of time. I worked in uh, community banking um, and uh, mortgages for a period of time, but really was not happy with the way my career was going there. I've been, a you know, because I'd been at CMU, I'd had a lot of exposure to computers um, uh, and it'd always been a hobby of mine. So I ended up um, uh, working with a local friend and be, worked in the computer industry, um, you know, essentially in the internet space and kind of rode the internet boom for a period of time and the technology boom for about 12 years. I actually um, worked at a, non, at a, at a um, a startup here in Pittsburgh. Um, when that, uh, you know, um, 9-11 happened, our, our, our actual, the, the investments uh, ran out. Um, uh, and we ended up in the, the, the tech boom of 2000 really uh, was in full force at that time. Um, took a look at my career and what did I want to do? And I decided I wanted to get back into the finance field and specifically focused on investments. So started pursuing the CFA degree at the time. Um, so you could say that this is in some ways plan B. Um, Fortuitous. <laughs> but um, it was, I, I was, I happened to just be in the right place at the right time. I mean, extremely fortunate. Um, I was doing some consulting work for the foundation, ended up um, leaving and working at Mellon um, uh, in their uh, securities lending. As I said, this is around, um, uh, just before the um, just before the financial crisis, um, like I said, we were re I was doing credit work on reinvesting cash uh, for the bank uh, in regard to securities lending, which is a very uh, unique and interesting part of the business that um, if you ever find me at a party, I'd be happy to describe it to you. Um, uh, and but then had the opportunity to come back to the foundation essentially for what has become this role. Um, because they knew who I was and what I was interested in doing, and they were looking to bring um, uh, kind of focus to the investment side of the business. So, um, you know, it is there's an aspect to right place, right time, but there was a lot of um, uh, there was a lot of hard work uh, leading up to that. Um, uh, so, you know, I, I was I was actually thinking back on the the work that I did at the bank um, uh, was. You know, it's retail banking is um, can be interesting if if it's the type of work you want to do. Um, but it, I learned a lot of lessons around about businesses, about personal finance there, um, just by you know the the customers that we worked with. It was a very interesting. It was a very interesting time, and the same with uh, the mortgage underwriting that I did. That helped me later on in my career when I was working as a uh, credit research analyst at Mellon, um, because we were aggregating those mortgages that that I had worked, not those specific mortgages, but the, the same concept. We were aggregating them in the investments that we held. And I could see the cracks in the system already. I mean, we, you know, I knew that mortgage underwriting standards had completely gone out the window at that time um, and recognized that that was a potential uh, risk that was going to happen. So, you know, you, you pick things up throughout your career that I think ultimately help you. Um, uh, my exposure to startups, um, you know, uh, and, and the technology space has helped me as I look at venture capital investments that we make, right? 
Um, I, I understand a lot of the underlying technology that, that um, you know, our, our, those venture capital managers are, are talking about. So um, it's all kind of come full circle, I guess. You know, being a portfolio manager, you really have to be aware of um, the economy, uh, how corporations work, how the, the, the nuts and bolts of investing, um, as well as, you know, um, why a donor wants to give you money, right? Mm -hmm. um, so hard work is a good formula and your, your passion um, just shines through Jonathan, both for the industry um, as well as the work you do. Candidly, I've been imagining you with an astronaut hat ever since you said you wanted to <laughs> I always said I wanted to earn enough money to buy a ticket, right? Um, <laughs> galactic. So uh, I don't think that's going to happen, but, um, you know, it's still a man can dream. But we're, we're getting closer. Uh, Josh, let me say thank you. This was just fun. This was insightful. I appreciate your time. I'm, I'm proud to know you and just keep up the great work that you're doing. Oh, no, thank you. It's been a pleasure. Um, and, uh, you know, thanks for listening. I think the organization I work for is a, is a great institution and um, hopefully has uh, had impact on um, at least one of the people uh, that are your students. So it's um, um, no, no doubt about it. I guarantee it. Yeah. Thank you, Jim. Thank you, Jonathan. You've been listening to Watching Trees Grow, presented by Troutwood. Don't forget to subscribe both to our podcast and our YouTube channel so you never miss an episode. If you're interested in learning more about Troutwood, please visit us at troutwood.com or follow us on social media. A special thank you to our guests today and our host, Jean Natali. Our producers are Jeff Davidek, Maggie Mayer, and me, Kristen Malone. This podcast is not intended to provide legal, investment, or tax advice on any of the topics we've covered. Thanks for listening. Join us next time on another great episode of Watching Trees Grow.